This is the Horse Radio Network. Hello, everyone. This is Glenn the Geek. I am founder of the Horse Radio Network, and this is a special health episode from the Horse Radio Network on the EHB-1 virus outbreak in the United States. The following recording is taken off the Horses in the Morning show from Wednesday, May 18, 2011. The concern about this particular outbreak is great enough that we thought we would provide this information on all the show feeds that are part of the Horse Radio Network to get it out to the most people possible. There's so much information, misinformation, and gossip floating around about this issue that we did the show to help you answer some of the questions that you might have. On this interview, you will hear myself, my co-host for the live morning show, Jamie Jennings, Christy West of TheHorse.com, and Dr. Niccolo Pastula. He is the Associate Professor in the Department of Medicine and Epidemiology at the University of California, Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. We hope that the following helps answer some of the questions that you might have. Listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network, brought to you by Back on Track. I'm Jamie Jennings, along with Glenn the Geek. And you guys, this is the time uh, where we... You know, put aside the funny and talk a little bit about, if if you think we're funny at all, really, (laughs) then we're going to put whatever you think aside um, and get a little bit serious because there is an equine herpes virus outbreak where right now just posted on our Facebook page that the AQHA is asking show managers to cancel or postpone shows in your area where the virus has been located. I know that there is a horse trial that has been canceled for this weekend in Colorado. So this is a, a kind of a big deal for people that compete and travel with their horse because this outbreak, um, you know, I, I, I can't think of something that's happened recently to cause this much of a of a stir uh, in the horse world so quickly. So we've got um, Dr. Nicola Pustula, uh, I, I know I said that incorrectly, uh, sorry doctor, and uh, Christy from thehorse.com, and they're going to come on and talk to you a little bit about what's going on. So first of all, good morning. I'm sorry I ruined your name. Good morning. No, that was, that was a good attempt there. It's actually Pustula. <laughs> it's it's, uh, it's Italian, but... I generally go by P. That's easier. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And, of course, hello again to Christy. You guys, let's get people the information that they need. I mean, people have been posting on our Facebook page about this and asking questions. And, you know, I think everybody's a little bit stirred up about what's going on. Is there a cause for that? Is it getting blown out of proportion? Tell us what's going on. Well, it's a little bit difficult to know the exact extent of the outbreak. It's definitely an outbreak that is defined by multiple horses developing this disease, and all the horses that we know of were exposed at the same place. An initial place was a national cutting horse show in Ogden, Utah. The problem that we have in trying to get a grip on the extent of this disease, the fact that at a state level, we approximately know how many cases have been diagnosed. For example, for the state of California, we just by yesterday had 10 confirmed cases of horses having developed the neurological form of herpes virus type 1, which is, in the state of California, a reportable disease. I'm pretty sure that at different state levels, and so far I've heard approximately 
based on confirmed and suspected cases, eight to nine additional states have had cases, as well as Canada has had cases. So we know that on a state basis we can get that information together, but what we're missing right now is a national institution that collects all this data. We hope that USDA will step up, step up to the plate and collect all this information. But it is definitely a outbreak that seems to affect uh, several horses, and it's difficult to know. I can only talk about what I've heard and also talking to colleagues that have been several deaths associated with this disease. I know of at least six. And uh, so far, as I said, for the state of California, so far 10 confirmed cases. And so if you look at different states, that could be an outbreak that may actually affect, hard to know, you know, 40, 50, or 60 horses. So a bit, it may also wow. be a little bit too early to determine at this stage, you know, how many horses. We, we are somewhere gathering information from the first wave, which is a horse that were exposed at the Utah show, but also at a show in California in Bakersfield. And what we're probably going to see is second waves of infection where these horses that may not have developed clinical symptoms at the show went back to the farm in a stable of origin and then potentially then spread the disease to additional horses. So we may see a second or third wave of infection that may definitely extend the number of horses that have been exposed and potentially will become diseased. Okay, so basically what I'm hearing is, yes, it is completely okay to freak out because it sounds like, I mean, 10 cases recently in California, that's that's pretty, uh, pretty significant. So let's back up and, you know, Christy, jump in here any time because I want to start out with what is the equine herpes virus? Why is there a vaccination for, I think it's the rhino vaccine that covers I thought that's what covered the herpes virus, but apparently not. Right, and I'd love for Dr. Uh, Dr. Pusterla to talk to us a little bit about what exactly is equine herpes virus, because people get people get a little bit confused because there are different types of herpes viruses that affect horses, and results in you know you know different syndromes. You know, one being respiratory, the rhino that you mentioned, one being neurologic, which is what that we're dealing with at the current outbreak, and then there's also uh, abortion storms that can be associated with equine herpes virus. And yes, they're all herpes viruses. So, um, Dr. Pusterla, can you just tell, give us a little bit of background on equine herpes virus to start, and we'll get into the vaccines and what. Not in a yeah, absolutely. It's it's what what you said. It's what the virus is. This this is a common virus of horses, and it's 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 widespread. It's worldwide distribution, very similar to herpes simplex in human population. It's I always say it's it's a it's an occupational hazard of being a horse and being infected with herpes virus, at least herpes virus one and herpes virus four. Now, the majority of the infection we see associated with herpes virus 1 are benign, if I can call them that way. They're self-limiting, and they affect the upper respiratory tract, causing a little bit of snotty nose, fever, swelling of the lymph node, and potentially also cough. And they affect generally young animals, and as I said, they're self-limiting. But on occasion, depending on the virus and the virulence, so the, the pathogenicity of, of the virus, the immune response of the host, the age of the host, we see other entity, and, and they're less, less common. We see occasionally abortion. It can be sporadic, meaning single cases. But because the virus is so highly contagious, it can also become an outbreak of abortion. And then less commonly, we'll see 
this neurological form, which is known as equine herpes virus myeloencephalopathy. Unfortunately, this is the form that generally is more severe and can somewhere between 20 and 20 and 30 percent of the cases lead to recumbency and generally these horses then are humanely destroyed because of you know the lack of improvement generally and in this case so doctor, does it, well, I'm trying to understand exactly what it does to the horse and so it, it, this version the neurological version affects the brain and you know what happens correct so what generally happens is the virus, it's, it's an upper respiratory tract virus. So we'll, we'll be, the, the, the transmission occurs via aerosols, so particles of virus, so virus in the air, or droplets, so virus that is trapped in nasal secretion. The infection occurs and spreads in the upper airways, which is then the fairly benign form, the rhinopneumonitis, if you want to call it that way. Then some viruses that are a bit more aggressive and virulent may actually go into deeper tissue and infect a very specific type of white blood cells, the lymphocytes. Then depending on the level of lymphocytes, these white blood cells that are infected, that are now in the blood, and the horse is what we call viremic, then these cells can actually cross the blood-brain barrier and enter within the central nervous system. And within the central nervous system, this virus will actually affect the lining of the vasculature system. So it has an affinity to blood vessels. And it will cause a, a disease process that is similar to a stroke, if you want to call it that way. So it will cause thrombosing, so plugging of vessels within the central nervous system, which then will lead as you can imagine, if a vessel is plugged, there is no nutrition, there is no oxygenation to the part of the brain on the spinal cord, which then leads to the severe neurological symptoms that we see. But not every single virus or EHV1 virus will actually do that. It's a combination of host and virus that may, on some instances, lead to this neurological form, which is, as I said, fairly rare, but unfortunately with this outbreak, we had the perfect storm. We had a very, large, a very large population of what appears susceptible horses that were commingled at the same time. And one other factor in herpes viruses that makes them especially difficult to deal with is latency. And can you tell us a little bit about what latency is? Well, latency is the virus that becomes dormant after primary Exposure, very similar to if you want to compare it to herpes simplex in human and the blister that happens occasionally when people get stressed, fatigued, and so on. So the virus goes dormant, and depending on the immune system, when there are stress factors, and for horses, what is stress? Well, horses don't have to go to work, don't have to pay bills, but they get on the road, transportation, they get heavy exercise, they may have herd issue, they may have underlying disease, some procedure performed to them, and also some medication may be immunosuppressive. And what happened in these instances, the virus that is dormant in specific area, and generally these are ganglia, the trigeminal ganglia is the site of latency, they become what we call reactivated. So they wake up and then they decide, okay, well, I'm going to see what's around, 
they go back into the bloodstream, go back into the nasal passages, and then can actively be shed. And that explains why some outbreak actually can occur in closed population, where there is no new horse coming into the population. That also explains why occasionally we see this sporadic abortion where the mare, during late, gest late, excuse me, late, um, late gestation, is stressed, the immune system is slightly shifted, there's a reactivation of the virus, and now the virus actually crosses the uteroplacental eunuch and causes disease of the placenta or the fetus. And then once the virus has been reactivated, after a while the immune system takes over and the virus goes back to be dormant. So it's an on and off type of switch that we truly don't understand, but we know can be triggered by stress factors. And in other words, you never fully get rid of this disease once a horse has contracted it. Herpes is for life. You never feel lonely when you have herpes. <laughs> okay. okay. It's not okay. a laughing matter. But that's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> if, if, I could, if I could jump in here and dumb it down a little bit for, for folks like me. Um, so if your horse is exposed to the virus, he can carry it in his own happy little system for an extended period of time not be sick himself or appear sick himself and still give it to other horses he's exposed to. Is that how it kind of works? Correct. Oh, now, okay. we need to assume, and we don't, we don't have good data on what is the percentage of horses that are latently infected. If you look at the, the literature, it's somewhere between 0 and 100%, which is not very helpful. I think it depends a lot on the population of horses, their husbandry, and how much horse-to-horse -horse contact there is. You know, the, the common questions about what the listeners can do to prevent what we can do to get rid of it, like we've got some questions um, uh, from some of our listeners, and they want to know how long does this virus live on things? Like if you touched mm. uh, the horse and, and you've got some on your sleeve, what is the, the uh, how long would that live there or in a stall that you were in at a horse show or anything like that? What is the period before it, it dissolves, I guess? That's difficult to answer just with a number. It depends a lot of environmental factor, temperature, humidity. It's a, it's a very resistant virus. In generally, we like to assume somewhere between you know, a few hours to a few days the organism may be infective in nasal secretion that can be on the ground, on the wall, in a water bucket, or on the hand of a person. So that's why good husbandry is essential to eliminate the risk of transmitting the disease by what we call fomite, so shared equipment, hands, and so on. Okay, so, so basically, you know, wash your hands, all that kind of stuff. Uh, can it? How, how is it transferred from horse to horse? In just nasal secretions, or does a fly bite one horse and then bite another horse and transmit it that way? How is it transmitted? So mo most of the transmission, well, I wouldn't say most of the transmission. There's two ways. It could be nose-to-nose -nose contact, so a horse that is infected has the virus in nasal secretion, and another horse that comes close by and they just nozzle and gets exposed that way. That's one possibility. The more common one, I believe, is the shared equipment, where you know tack equipment, bit, um, 
grooming equipment, feeding equipment is contaminated and is then shared between different horses' hands. You know, this is typical example is the spread of this disease in hospitals where a common horse comes in, sheds the organism, and everybody wants to help and pull and get this horse in the stall and put him in a sling, and then everybody goes back to work on, you know, outpatient, and then the disease can be transmitted that way. So generally, disease is combined by horse-to-horse contact, but also what we call fomite, so shared equipment that is contaminated. And it's, it's a highly, you know, it's, it's a highly infectious organism. So what, uh, brushes, what brushes and saddle pads can transport this disease? Correct. Correct. Any any oh, shed equipment that has been in contact with a horse that is shedding. We have you know we have looked at people, just people in our isolation unit working with these horses, brushing them, just doing the normal physical exam and so on. And then we have swabbed, you know, the 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 lab coat, and we swabbed the the boots, and we have swabbed the bouffon, and we could find the virus everywhere. So it's very volatile. Doctor, what are, but what are the first things that, what will I see first in my horse if I suspect he has this? What are the first symptoms that I'll see? The, that's a very good question. And I, actually, it's, it's where horse people and horsemen can actually intervene and recognize the disease early. This disease is characterized in the early stage by fever. That's the typical hallmark. Fever, and as the disease progresses, horses may then develop respiratory symptoms, nasal discharge, coughing, that would be two typical symptoms, and on occasion horses will then develop the typical neurological symptoms. That means that what owner can do if they suspect that their horse may have been exposed, but also what we recommend owners to do any time they leave their premises and go to a show, a clinic, and so on, is to monitor the horse twice a day by taking its rectal temperature. And any time the rectal temperature is above 101.5 degree Fahrenheit, and well understood, it's not a hot day and the horse hasn't been exercised just uh, half an hour before, then that would be to me an indication that there is an inflammatory disease process going on. So that's probably the time to call a vet and pursue diagnostic to determine, especially in today's situation, determine if the horse has been exposed to herpes virus 1. And it's important to know this early stage of the disease because that's the time when the animal can actually remove from the general horse population, isolated, treated, well understood, and prevent further spread. It's also the time where we can intervene with specific drugs and prevent the severe complications of the neurological form in case the horse is infected with herpes virus 1. Sure. So to summarize then, if, you, if you're... I believe they're taking temperatures on horses in the hospitals to look for to look for fevers. What twice a day right now? Is that right? Yeah, not not just in the hospital. Every person That's that owns mean. a horse that mm-hmm. potentially has been exposed went to the show, one of these show in Utah or in California, or there is a horse that went to this show in the barn where they bought their horses. Should monitor their horses twice a day for increase in rectal temperature, which would be the early signs of herpes virus 1 infection. And for how long would you would you suggest that people as long as we see as long as we see cases. This is a disease, it's a viral disease. It's going to be quick, but it's going to be painful. So how long it depends on how many more waves we're going to see. If we're just limited to the first wave, meaning all the horses that went to the show get 
exposed, some of them will become diseased, and there's no further spread to other horses, then we should be actually out of this situation in the next 7 to 10 days. Unfortunately, if there is continuous spread from this originally infected or exposed animal to then resident horse population, and we don't confine horses, and we restrict horse movements, and horses use common, uh, people use common sense, and maybe don't travel too much with their horses right now. So if we don't prevent this, this is a disease that can be ongoing for, you know, the next few weeks. Sure. So we're going to monitor temperatures until we don't see cases anymore. And one thing that people have been asking about quite a bit as well is, you know, what do you do if you if, if you find that your horse does have a fever? Obviously, you're going to call your vet. But what else right. do you need to do? You need to isolate that horse. It's, it's important one. to is- exactly. It's important to to isolate the horse, and the isolation mainly is to prevent further spread. Not just isolating the horses, but also using what we what we what we call good biosecurity protocol. So washing your hand, using gloves, having restricted booties, or maybe a coverall when you deal with the horse, feed the horse, mark the stall. All these procedures that potentially would prevent spread of the disease. What we also need to consider is by the time a horse is diagnosed with EHV-1, spread to neighboring horses may already have occurred. So it's important that every single horse in a barn where there's a suspect or a confirmed case is closely monitored and that horses that are diagnosed with herpes virus 1 are physically removed from that barn in a separated area and cared for in a way that prevents further spread. Right, and that's something I wanted us to touch on, was what exactly is good isolation, and just, you know, having the horse a couple of stalls away from the other horses probably isn't enough. Sharing a fence line is definitely not enough. Correct. That depends a little bit on the situation on the farm. In a hospital setting, there are specific areas, isolation, that are restricted to animals that are highly contagious. In most of the boarding facilities and barns, that's potentially not the case, but even restricting an area of the barn, a corner of the barn, and having the animal just physically removed and kept in this place, putting up a 12 by 12 outside in the you know, upper west corner of the property would be enough. So there are ways to actually physically remove horses that have been diagnosed from a barn and then keep them separately. And I think the physical distance is essential in preventing further spread. These horses will shed a very high viral load in the nasal secretion. And plus it's the it's you know the the barrier that you have. People are then more aware, okay, this is an infectious animal. I need to be very careful. And that's all the different steps, you know, the feeding, the cleaning the stall, the caring for the animal. It needs to be very well planned. Now and doctor so if, if if I live in Arizona or, or Washington or California, one of the states where there's known cases right now, would I, should I be a little concerned to go to the horse show this weekend or next weekend? Or just if I go to the horse show, make sure that my horse isn't playing footsie with the other horses? Correct. Uh, it's a judgment call. It's a risk assessment. How much risk do you want to take? If, if you were to go to a cutting show right now, I would... I would suggest you stay home and you probably cancel because it's possible that you may encounter horses that have been exposed. If you go to other shows, so no, no quarter horse show, no cutting horse shows, then what I would recommend there too is be sure that your horse is very well vaccinated against rhino pneumonitis. We know that 
the vaccination will not prevent the neurological form, but will definitely decrease the severity of the clinical symptoms, also decrease the viral shedding in nasal secretion, and hopefully prevent this more severe clinical presentation. It's also important that if an owner decides to go to a show, that you institute this very simple step, which is restrict movement, prevent nose-to-nose contact to other horses. Don't go touch other horses other than yours. I was just going to say that, doctor, because we all have a habit at shows of going over and saying, oh, nice pony, and patting their noses. And that's something you want to avoid, and you want to avoid people doing that to your horse, too. Exactly. Avoid it. Restrict the equipment to your horse. Monitor the horse twice a day. And then bring with you hand sanitizer. The alcohol hand sanitizer, rub them on your hand every time you touch your horse, every time you touch another horse if you have to. And these very simple steps will hopefully prevent... And i got to add one, doctor. I don't mean to interrupt you, but Jennifer just pointed out, too, no hand grazing because you don't know if the last horse threw that grazing spot... Yep. No shared water bucket. That's another one. Yeah, and no grazing. People do that all the time at shows, and we always tried. We, As a general course for Good Husbandry, Jennifer and I would not allow our horses we brought to shows to graze, and it, that was one of the reasons, and people always thought we were mean. Well, let them eat grass. Well, you know, right. that's not his grass. Um, so we always were a little picky about that. That's a nice what, what I want to reemphasize is, the steps that we are taking and ask owners to take should be steps that we shouldn't only take during times of outbreak. These are common sense steps that should be taken any time you're dealing with a horse, in times of outbreaks, in times where there is no outbreak. And that would also prevent the spread of other respiratory organisms, such as equine influenza virus, strep equi, which causes strangles. It's just common sense once you're not at home how to behave, what to do, and how to maximize the health of your horse. Right, and it's all excellent points. And I I know we're running way over time, Glenn, Jamie, but I really appreciate the time, and hopefully you've all gotten a lot. No, this is good stuff. This is good stuff. And I do want to mention, too, as as Dr. Fusterla is mentioning, uh, typical precautions to take, he is actually conducting an infectious upper respiratory tract disease webinar with us. I know we're basically talking about neuro disease today, but, you know, they're both can can be caused by herpes viruses. And he's got that webinar on thehorse.com on June 30th. -hmm. And if you want more information on that, just check out thehorse.com slash webinars. But there's going to be a lot more of this, this kind of great information from Dr. Pusterla coming up soon. Okay, so one of the questions that is rampant on our page is everybody wants to know, and I think you answered this by saying you guys don't know, but how long can it live on the brushes and the tack and all of your equipment? And I think you said you didn't know that. And then once a horse is a carrier, do we have to euthanize it? Well, unless you want to euthanize 40 to 75% of the U.S. horse population, you shouldn't. <laughs> oh, okay. Lord, okay. it that. <laughs> it's, it's an occupational hazard. We have to live with that as we have to live with others, other diseases. No, there's no, re- there's no reason. It's, it's unfortunate if a horse becomes diseased. Now, what we know is once a horse has become diseased, that horse, as another 40 to 60% of horses out there, has the same potential to recrudesce. But as I said, the reactivation of a latent stage is very difficult and is not very effective. So we just have to live with this. 
And in times of stress, where the horse is stressed, for many reasons, underlying disease, medication, transportation, we need to be extra aware that this is a potential risk. But if we prevent horse-to-horse contact and have good hygiene procedures, good biosecurity protocols instituted, then we should be able to minimize the potential spread. And if you look at what happened at the Utah show, although this is just speculative, it would be nice to have all that information, we're dealing with a young population of horses that are definitely stressed. It's a large, I'm assuming it was seven to 800 horses. It would be interesting to know what was the vaccination status of all these horses? What was the stress level of all these horses? Any medication that these horses may have received that potentially could have immunocompromised? I'm, I'm thinking here mainly of corticosteroids, you know, injectable corticosteroids injected in the joint as example. So these are all potential factors that may have predisposed these horses to, be ex- to, to actually spread the disease, and right. whoever brought it in that population will probably, you know, the typhoid Mary will probably never know who that was. Well, now, and I just, we, we have, we're running out of time here. I have two more quick questions for you. Uh, one, I think you answered earlier Jamie's question on how long it will live on stuff and tack and brushes and stuff. You said anywhere from hours to days, depending on the environment. Is that correct? Correct. correct. Okay, and then... All, all this equipment the other, can be disinfected. Right. And alcohol is the best way to do that? Alcohol for hand sanitizer works well. There's different compounds, the phenolics, the peroxygens, bleach, diluted bleach for answers okay. to the gallon will work very well, but you need to be careful with bleach, you know, prevent any, any spill, any contact to skin, but also it's, it's corrosive. But that's fairly easy. So brushes, as an example, um, can, be, can be wiped up. You can, you can use, you know, different disinfectants. I think it's, it's mainly removing, physically removing. Even if these brushes are soaked in water and rinsed heavily, it's the same with, you know, any kind of equipment. At least you physically remove secretion, nasal secretion, other organic material that potentially may contain the virus. Okay, and then one other quick question is, how long is the incubation period in the horse from the time he's exposed till if he's going to get sick? Is it days? Is it hours? Is it weeks? It will be day. That depends, again, on the host response and the virulence of the virus. But on average, if we were going to do an average, it's days? In average, I would say he is somewhere between four and seven days, can be as quick okay. as two days, can be as long as 10 days. So if you, if you put like okay. four to seven days, I think that would be a good time. That's actually why when we look at how long should horses be in quarantine once they've been an exposed animal, we generally use somewhere between three to four times the average incubation time, which gives you 21 to 28 days. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Doctor. We really appreciate you being on today. Thank you, Christy, for setting this up on short notice. We asked you to do this yesterday, and you came through for us, as thehorse.com always does. And I know you guys have a bunch of articles up there that are going up right now on this, so keep in touch at thehorse.com. Check it daily. Make sure you do that. Well, we hope that was helpful to you and helped answer some of the questions that you might have. And as I said at the end there, please do check on thehorse.com. They are updating articles daily on this and keeping track of it as close as possible. 
And if you want to hear Horses in the Morning, you can hear that every morning, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time at HorsesInTheMorning.com, or you can catch the podcast version later in the day. We appreciate you listening, and we hope you found this helpful. Your regular show will be back on its schedule. You won't miss a one. This was a special episode. Have a great day, everybody. Be safe. And wash your hands, saddle pads, brushes, and everything else that your horses come in contact with. 